Hey, it's Mark. Welcome to the new year, everyone. We hope your holiday break was a good one. As we embark on 2024, my colleagues and I look forward to bringing you an intriguing lineup of podcast guests, more breakdowns on the biggest marketing policy and media trends, and highlights of the stories that make healthcare marketing the vibrant sector that it is. A recent study found that doctors and nurses are among the most popular professions on TikTok. We also know from other research that Gen Z and millennials are increasingly turning to TikTok for health advice and information in lieu of speaking to their doctors. The convergence of those two trends brings us to this week's show. Our first guest of the year is, appropriately enough for this era of healthcare social media, a doctor influencer. Dr. Peter Rescala, aka Dr. Disney, uses his TikToks to detail the day-to-day life of a pediatrician and break down medical topics into easy-to-understand content. Several of his videos have millions of views, but unlike Arthur or SpongeBob or whatever kids are consuming on YouTube kids these days, Rescala makes sure they're a safe place for learning about important health topics. As Lesha notes, Dr. Disney speaks to the child in all of us. She's also back with a health policy update. Hey, Lesha. Hey, Mark. Today, I'll discuss the pharma industry's planned drug price hikes for 2024 amid the federal government's moves to roll out Medicare price negotiations. And that brings us to our trend segment. Hey, Jack, what are we starting off the new year with? We're actually starting off the new year with you, Mark, as you preview the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference taking place next week in San Francisco. Lesha breaks down TikTok's hormone balancing trend, and I dive into the healthcare-focused film shortlisted for this year's Oscars. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hi, I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM, and I'm really excited to be here today with Peter Rascala, a social media influencer who's known as Dr. Disney Online. Peter Rascala is a pediatrician and content creator who has more than 500,000 followers across TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, where he details the day-to-day life of a pediatrician and breaks down medical topics in easy-to-digest and often hilarious ways. He brands himself as a creator who provides health education through entertainment and has an audience spanning parents, nurses, doctors, and children. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness, what an intro. <laughs> I, I, don't think I could have even written something about myself that nice. Wow. Thank you so much for having me, Lesha. So Peter, tell me a little bit about how you got started out as a creator and sort of what inspired you to become a doctor influencer. Sure. It all started. So I am a theater kid by training. I was in the church and school doing plays and having a great time. And that kind of well-roundedness is what gets you into medical school. And then the first two years of medical school were absolutely grueling. Like the, the go-to phrase that everyone says is it's like drinking out of a fire hose because it's just so much information. And it's really wonderful that science has exploded. But in that explosion, I think we've thrown education out the window. And as a result, like I was super stressed out and studying for my national exam. We have three national exams, the USMLE, which is the United States Medical Licensing Exam 1, 2, and 3. You take the first one after your second year of medical school. And back in my day, not that I like saying that phrase, but back in my day, you actually got scored on it. But the score is kind of a faulty score. I'm not going to lie to you. Like they've done studies and it doesn't really correlate with how smart you are, but people still use this like number as how intelligent you are and it would affect where you'd go. 
And I was so stressed and I realized as I was studying that I was like tipping a toe in depression. And so I told myself like, as soon as I finish this exam, regardless of the outcome, I'm going to start a YouTube channel because I need to go back to my roots of entertaining and creating. And I've done like video producing my whole life. So I wanted to start it as a commitment to myself to get back into creativity after all the grueling of med school. That's amazing. I was also a theater kid in high school. So maybe that's why oh, I no like way. doing podcasts and things like that. Oh my goodness. Um, that's but <laughs> yeah, so you call yourself Dr. Disney online um, on your TikTok profile and Instagram. Where did that idea come from? That's an excellent question. Okay. So actually right at this exact point in time, when I started the channel, it actually wasn't called Dr. Disney. It was called What's Up Doc. And the reason why is because I wasn't yet a doctor and I didn't want anyone, my school, future employers to find it and be like, you misrepresented yourself as a doctor online. And, and so I was really nervous and I had to be very strategic from the start about like thinking about the worst common factor, like someone who could find this, who could put out a vendetta for me and how they could attack me. And so I tried to be really cognizant of that. And so I, I called myself What's Up Doc. And then I saw that a lot of my colleagues who were medical students who wanted to create brands online were calling themselves Dr. So-and-so, even though they were medical students. So after a couple of months, I said, you know what? I really love Disney and I really am going to be a doctor. I could call myself Dr. Disney because even if someone does get upset about the doctor point, I'm kind of saying I'm a I'm a provider of Disney content, so I think I could sort of weasel my way through like that. So I called myself Dr. Disney, and I found that creating Disney content also brought me joy because I'm a huge Disney kid too. And those videos got viral really quickly. And I thought, wow, I could do both at the same time and find fulfillment from this. So you really started out kind of doing this idea while you were still in medical school. And it was almost like a, a stress relief or sort of a channel for you to kind of, like you said, go back to your roots and, and find some joy <laughs> amidst all the stress of medical school. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, can you talk a little bit about those initial videos that went viral um, and sort of what happened from there? Sure. It was a really stressful experience at the start because I was writing my own content, editing it, directing it, recording it. And then that's like the hard front end or the back end of it. And then there's all the front end stuff of like posting, promoting. And I, a lot of people when they start their YouTube channels or their brands, they're like, oh, all my friends and family. But like my friends were all medical people and they didn't really have one I mean, I don't like saying you don't have the time because we all have the same 24 hours. So people didn't prioritize watching my videos. My friends didn't prioritize watching my videos because they were studying for medical school. So I kind of just was creating in a void and I would spend like maybe 50 hours on a five minute video that was medical wow. heavy just to make sure. Yeah, just because I didn't want, again, anyone to attack me for being a medical student online who's giving, uh, you know, not, not that I was giving advice, but like one video I started off with that was really important to me was video game disorder. Like the World Health Organization came out and said video game disorder is now a diagnosis. And I went through the nuance of it because I'm also a video game kid. And I was like, Anything can be a disorder if it affects your social life. Like exercising can be a disorder if it, but like, because Fortnite was big at the time, it was like this keyword. So I created a whole video about it, but it took me so much effort and it got like, I don't know, 200 views. And I was like, okay, I guess that's 
fine for 50 hours of work. And then Aladdin was coming out at the time. And I reacted to the new, a whole new world and speechless sung by Naomi Scott from the movie. And I was just like, a whim video put, did it in like six minutes and I posted it. It got a hundred thousand views on YouTube. Wow. And I thought, my gosh, like I should do the medical content, but also pepper in this stuff that's easier for me to make because I'm not going to burn out that way. Absolutely. And, you know, now you've sort of graduated to having a lot of followers across all these social media platforms. And, you know, on TikTok, you have several videos that have like millions of views and some of them are on health topics now. Um, You know, I believe the adverse childhood experiences one was one that got like 12 million views or something. So can you talk about You've done your research? You really done your <laughs> <Yeah>. research. <laughs> um, you know, can you, t- how do you end up choosing which health topics to post about and sort of get those views with? It's an, it's a good question. I tend to like my base, like if you see a video that's come out, it's kind of really based on what I've experienced in the hospital or in my training that day. Like if we had a lecture that I thought was really groundbreaking, like we had a lecture about chat GPT and how it's being implemented in healthcare. And I thought that's cool. Let me talk about that really quickly. But the ACEs video was one that has been really important to me. Even before I started medical school, I watched a Ted talk about it and I thought, dude, this is like formative. Like everyone should know how our childhood impacts us. And actually, I'm going to put a little plug here. If you, I mean, it's not really a plug, but if you watch any piece of entertainment and you find out like the villain's backstory, you will almost always find that it's something that happened to them in childhood that like propelled them to who they are, except for like the Joker. But like, even that is something that I actually, that's not even true in the movie, the Joker, it's something that happened to him as a child. His mom was not treating him the best. And that. I think we need to be more cognizant about that. So I said, let me put this video together and just put the screening out there. And in doing that and that video exploding and getting super mega viral, I realized I had to then finish the story and like talk about positive childhood experiences, talk about the effects of ACEs, talk about how you can reverse it and how you should talk to your therapist and your psychiatrist that this is something that's important to you. And then really wonderful things came out of that video, like people saying, why does the questionnaire ask if your mother was abused? Why doesn't it ask if your father was abused? Like those are things that, I mean, this questionnaire was made in the 1980s. Don't quote me on that, but like it hasn't been modified or updated since. And I think it's wonderful that the community, like, I don't really like the word patients, but like people could inform healthcare based on the things that we've been using. And they're like, actually, it could be a little bit better. Right. And I think, um, you know, that's a good example of how much mental health is kind of a very popular topic on TikTok um, because something like, you know, the ACEs score got so viral and everyone was so interested in, you know, how they, you know, ranked on it and and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And you, you say that you often tailor your videos to kids and to young people in sort of an educational way um, and that you want to address the child in all of us. Can you talk a little bit about your approach and why that's important? Yeah, I am really big about playing to people's highest intelligence and making sure that I am a safe space for people as best as I can be. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to make mistakes, but i try my best to have that as my goal. And because of that, I work really hard to 
not have curse words and to not have profanity or vulgarity in my content so that if a child did land on my content, which I'm, I just finished a show, a musical that I'm in, it's a, a Christmas Carol and there are some child actors who are in it. And they came up to me and they're like, dude, you're Dr. Disney. And it's like these eight year old and 10 year old who are coming up to me. They're like, I just watched your video online and I feel so safe that they found my content. It's not like I have to be like, oh, you know, you should have your parents watch with you or something like that. Like they could just enjoy my content and feel that their intellect is played to, that they are learning something new and they're having a, a good time because I didn't really have that content growing up. I mean, we all had Arthur and, and you know, SpongeBob, but even like SpongeBob is not the most educational. So I try to fit the fill the void of content where I of something I could have watched and my parents could have walked in on me watching and I would have had no fear about that. Um, and also to make it fun and, and, and fantastic. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's, it's not usual to find TikTok doctor doctors who are pediatricians who are specifically tailoring their profile to sort of creating a safe space for young people and like kids. So you definitely fill a role there on the platform. But you also create a lot of stuff for adults as well and for people who might have other types of health concerns. You do have a video series, I believe it's called The Doctor's Note, where you're posting yeah. like daily videos like every single day, you know, when you're coming home from work or from the hospital or the, or the pediatric emergency room. And you're kind of just providing little snippets of your day to your audience, um, sort of like a behind the scenes view into what your life is like as a pediatrician. Um, what's the importance in your opinion of like developing like a daily series like that? It's so funny that you say that you call it a behind the scenes because we're theater people. So it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, what happens in the hospital? But it kind of is a behind the scenes. I never even thought about it that way. Oh my goodness, I'm going to like think about rebranding now, Lesha, because we <laughs> call it the behind the scenes of healthcare. So the, I think the easiest thing about the doctor's note is when I was initially starting, I started on YouTube and then I dabbled in Instagram and I didn't really like Instagram because it felt very curated. And so I went to TikTok or back in my day, it was Musical.ly and it was a lot of dubbing and dancing and it was really fun. And then TikTok came out and I wanted to continue making content during residency but I knew that I could not continue with the writing a script, editing a script, directing, recording, posting, and promoting because that is just way, I, to have that expectation of myself would have been unreal. Um, so TikTok kind of filled that gap for me where I could go on my phone, a handheld recording device, post something for one minute and people wanted short form content. So that made it easier for me. And I was just, in a sort of processing my day and also processing things that I learned, I could, you know, because the, the, the go-to in medicine is see one, do one, teach one. So you like, you see something done, you do it yourself, then you teach someone else. So I would see something in the hospital. I would probably do it myself, but in order for myself to synthesize and process that info or the experience that happened, I would then go to TikTok, And of course, without patient information, just like, rework the story that so that's not identifiable to people but also get the same message across and share that online and that helped me continue to be creative continue to process and i felt like i was a better doctor for it because i 
was really paying attention to my experiences during the day, trying to find what's the best element here that I could share with the global stage. Yeah, that's super fascinating. It's like you're using TikTok as an educational tool, not just for your audience, but also for yourself in a way, um, sort of documenting these things and, you know, it's helping you remember them and kind of process them. I think that's really interesting. It's so true because like I would go back and if I find a previous video, I as soon as I hear the beginning words, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what this video is about. I remember what I learned that day and I can pull it back, Wow, which is really cool. That's really cool. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on the M&M podcast here is this idea that TikTok is quickly becoming the main source of health information for young people, Gen Z millennials, and young people are more likely to turn to TikTok to learn about mental health or other health conditions than they are even to go to a physical doctor's office and talk to an actual physician. Um, And because of that, I think healthcare providers are starting to realize more and more that they actually need to be on the platform as well to be sort of like a trustworthy counterpoint to some of the health misinformation that's out there um, mm-hmm. and to really reach people where they are, which is obviously on social media. Um, so how do you see yourself in terms of being sort of an expert on TikTok or these other social media sites and being sort of a counterpoint to health misinformation? There are two points here I want to talk about. The first being healthcare having to regain people's trust. For a long time, and maybe even still, healthcare has kind of been, I mean, the silver lining out of COVID is that it shook the healthcare industry and people had to change how they did everything in healthcare. And I think people know what it's like to go to a doctor's office, wait a very long time, and then find a doctor who's either dismissive who doesn't care about their holistic health and then pushes pills. And I love pediatrics in that I care about the holistic child. I ask about home life, school, video games, sports. I get to know the whole person in front of me and I'm trying to be their friend because in being their friend that will allow them to open up to me about some of this more intense mental health things that they might not want to share with someone. And I, I kid you not, I'm like, Every single interaction I've had with a teenager in clinic, they've broken down with me just because they've gone through COVID and they have gone through so many things at home and COVID itself might not have impacted them personally, but being at home is a stressor. And then everyone being at home meant that families had to really see each other for 24 hours a day and you got to see the real dark areas of your family's life. And that was a super stressor. And so... Teenagers are going through a lot. Children are going through a lot. And ACEs reveals that as well to bring it back to that. And we need to do a better job as the health field to go away from like medicine and start talking about people's holistic health. And I believe it's wonderful that we have physician and I don't even like the word influencers that we have physician creators online because Think about, I always tell the, my colleagues who are like, how did you do this? What, what, why do you do this? And is it fun? Should we start? I'm like, absolutely. Absolutely. Think about the three questions you get asked the most. Like you can talk about that online and record it once and it lives on forever educating people. And of course you have to have a disclaimer, like this is not, you know, health 
got advice, you have to talk to your own doctor, but in meeting them where they're at, they're going to want to talk to their doctor. They're going to want to find a doctor like you who hears them and is providing information for them. And we're not gatekeeping medicine or healthcare behind money or insurance. There are a lot of hurdles to getting care. And the more that we can break that down, I think a lot of doctors are tired and burnt out and just stressed and to do this is extra work. And I think the theater kids are finding it fulfilling to find this new avenue to provide care. And I'm all for it. All, all, what is it? All steam ahead, all engines ahead, whatever that's saying. Full steam ahead. Yeah, full steam ahead. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and, you know, I, I think that sentiment is growing. I spoke with another doctor creator, Dr. Austin Chang, who um, oh, was nice. at Health in Las Vegas. And I think you were there as well because I saw a photo of yeah. you with him and Dr. Mike. Um, oh my gosh, you did your research. <laughs> I'm a journalist. <laughs> um, but yeah, and you know, Austin basically kind of had a similar mentality where he said he really actually believed that medical schools should add a little bit of training for doctors, like sort of communications training um, for all med students to sort of learn how to begin communicating to people on social media and have that be a little bit more of a part of a holistic approach, I guess. And, you know, so I think that idea is growing and we're seeing more healthcare providers join TikTok um, and, and sort of have positive experiences with it. Um, so, you know, to, to kind of close things up, um, what do you hope your audience ultimately takes away from your social media presence? And also, what are your hopes for the future? I would love to get into that, but I don't want to forget my thought because I'm, I'm remembering the Austin Chang comment and I agree with him. And another element that I, I noticed in my medical school training that I just want to talk about is they don't do a good job about communication. Like bedside manner is not even a class. They're like, oh, patient-centered medicine. And you go into the class and it's all about the questions you have to ask the patient without giving, like we don't learn statistics about how, and this is a true thing, on average, how long do you think a doctor lets a patient talk before they interrupt them? Oh, I'd probably say like 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Less, less than that, 14 oh seconds. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And they just like cut you off to get their, mm -hmm. their questions in because that's how we're trained to talk. And it's horrible because then people don't really feel like they're listened to, or we start anchoring on diagnoses without actually hearing your whole story. It's just, it's not done well. And because of my theater background, the hardest classes for me in medical school were like the biochem classes. And when my friends and I were talking together, I was like, oh my goodness, guys, biochem is so difficult. They're like, biochem is difficult. You know, what's really difficult. Those patient classes. Like, why are the patient classes difficult? You're just talking to someone. And they're like, they told me this, no one ever taught us to talk to people. Cause you think about it, pre-med is like grueling science, like grueling calculus and all these like math and heavy questions. And you're like, why did we never learn how to, like imagine if doctors had a public health class, had a communication class. Like imagine if we prioritize these things. Pre-med, oh, if I, Lesha, if we had a whole talk about what pre-med is and we could, we could really change all of healthcare if we changed medical education. But I think it's been built this way because people are profiting off of it. And I don't know how they're not able to see the clear gaps in training. Yes, there needs to be a communication class. Because of that experience, I went to my medical school and I said, hey, let me create a class. I'm gonna teach a class called medical improv 
where I teach my classmates how to communicate better using theater games. And like we would stand in front of each other and we'd like pretend to be mirrors. And even just that ability to see someone, make eye contact. These are things that they've never learned how to do because their heads are always in books. They're not looking at people. They're not hearing people. And we had like 25 students who did it and they were like, this is sensational. This is amazing. They like asked me to put it on for the whole hospital. Nurses came and PAs came. It was this huge thing teaching, training doctors and healthcare providers to communicate better by bringing theater into the space. Like there's an art to medicine that everyone's been ignoring and it's just like in our faces. And because of that, you have my, yeah, theater kids galore. Actually at health, you would not believe it. Like every single person I met, I like talked to them about theater and they're like, no way, I'm a theater kid. One person's a go-go dancer. Yeah, like people have just... The theater kids are changing healthcare <laughs> because they know that there's an it. art to life that has just been ignored. And medicine is like hootie tootie science and snooty. And it's just like people don't do that. People are complex and beautiful and holistic, and we have to meet them where they're at. So I hope the future of healthcare is to really prioritize health and not medicine. And really, you know, in my, in my psych- psychiatric patients and when I deal with them and take care of them, of that is behavioral, things that are happening at home, things that we need to build policies and programs to meet the child where they're at. And those children become grownups. I don't like the word adults, but they become, because we're all just big kids trying to figure out life because life has done a doozy on all of us. And if our doctors and our providers could really hear us out and meet us where we're at, then we won't have these problems and diagnoses that are just burgeoning inside of us and become like autoimmune disorders and it's just it's very complicated but the answer is very simple bring back the art into medicine that's beautiful and a great way to wrap it up and thank you so much peter for offering your really important perspective on being a creator on being a theater kid on this idea of bringing the art back into medicine i love it and we really value insight And for anyone who wants to check out Peter's TikTok page, it's at dr.disney on TikTok. Thanks again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I had an absolute joy and thank you for letting me share my perspective as well. Thanks, Lesha. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. As it does every new year, the pharma industry is set to raise list prices on more than 500 drugs this January, according to Reuters and research firm 3Axis Advisors. Typically, pharma companies increase drug costs by about 5 to 6% every year, even amid backlash over high drug costs and a crackdown by the federal government on pharma companies that raise prices faster than the rate of inflation. Pfizer has announced the most drug price hikes this year for the second year in a row, making up about 25% of all the increases planned so far, or about 124 drugs. Buxalta, which is owned by Takeda, comes second to Pfizer, planning 53 price hikes. USB Pharma comes in third with 40 price hikes. While Sanofi has planned to reduce the prices of its insulin products this year, it also announced it will be increasing the prices of its typhoid fever, rabies, and yellow fever vaccines by 9% each this year. Some drug makers are planning on cutting costs, however, with GSK being one saying it will reduce the prices of some of its asthma, herpes, and anti-epileptic drugs in January. 
The move comes as the pharma industry braces for the first wave of Medicare negotiations, as included in the Inflation Reduction Act passed in 2022. Last year, the federal government chose the first 10 drugs that will be included in negotiations. Later this year, it will announce the new lower prices of those drugs. Typically, pharma companies raise prices every January, with 1,424 drugs seeing increases last year. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMNM. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome back Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. Well, before we get into any of the social media stuff, I want to throw it to you for a little preview of JPM next week. Sure. And, uh, you know, this Sunday I'll be heading to San Francisco for the 42nd annual JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, known as the biggest week in biopharma. It's, of course, where BDPEVC, pretending to know what those acronyms mean, but (laughs) and others converge to discuss potential M&A, deliver financial guidance and offer a host of other updates on, you know, regulatory and clinical uh, matters. And as, as such, uh, many look to this conference as an early gauge of how the year ahead is going to play out. So just thought I'd share a couple of things that I'll be on the lookout for. Deal making. it is an investor conference after all. Uh, last year, many of the companies uh, in biopharma and medtech uh, and the investors uh, put brakes on, on their M&A due to a host of factors. And when you look at the deal market of last year, uh, most of the deals came in the Q4 timeframe. So we had a, a sluggish first three quarters of the year, and then the ramp up came toward the end of the year. So industry will look to sort of continue that that momentum going into 2024. And there are certainly a number of factors that are bringing them to the deal table. Among them is the $300 billion patent cliff uh, on, on drugs, uh, which is, uh, as someone pointed out to me recently, three times what the prior patent cliff on small molecule drugs was that we saw about 10 years ago, which was largely replaced by biologics, which kind of came into their own the last decade. Uh, Also, we have on the horizon, as as Lesha mentioned, a Medicare price negotiation kicking in very shortly. Um, And the macroeconomic picture is also improving with the Fed finally uh, sort of hinting we're in for some lower rates. Uh, So the cost of borrowing could come down. But barriers abound, including a federal trade commission that has adopted a decidedly anti-merger stance of late under a new chairman and uncertainty around valuations, uh, which is also a a very important factor uh, when uh, VC and and business development uh, people that work for the strategics uh, look to do M&A. Next up, uh, I'll be looking at, you know, therapeutic categories of interest, uh, while the GLP-1 drugs, of course, uh, made by Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly, emerged as mega blockbusters last year, and dozens of companies are seeking to grab a piece of that market. The biggest M&A of last year actually included Pfizer uh, and its takeover of CGen, uh, which is a maker of uh, oncology drugs, specifically antibody drug conjugates, uh, and AbbVie's uh, acquisition of Unigen. Uh, both of, again, also in the ADC area. Uh, and so both were in the, in the targeted medicine area. And, uh, you know, experts expect that precision medicine uh, will be a big focal point uh, going into this year because people want to see uh, drugs that really work for them, for their specific populations. It makes physicians feel better, uh, makes obviously patients uh, feel more confident in the efficacy of, of those drugs. Uh, in turn, you know, drug, drug makers are more feel that there's, they're less risky. We also see a lot of innovation, innovation excuse me, around cell and gene therapies. That's getting a lot more interest. Uh, obviously, many more things to discuss, uh, but those will be some of the key components I'll be watching out for as the sector converges on San Francisco next week. 
And if you're going to be there, uh, please don't hesitate to give me a shout. Mark, I just had one more question before we go on to the next segment. Obviously, last year, I remember you talking about how rainy it was and people always talk about how packed San Francisco gets. I mean, people having, you know, meetings and coffee shops. I've even seen where they've been meetings in, you know, bathroom stalls just to try and find any available space. What has been your experience? Because you've been a few times over the years and it feels like it's always kind of similar, but obviously a lot of activity goes on there, too. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, last year, uh, they had uh, actually the attendance was down, uh, and I think it was you know attributed to the fact that you know it was the first year coming back from the pandemic years where it was 100% virtual, uh, and there was two consecutive back-to-back years where it was 20 and 21, uh, and so this year um, I, I'm actually interested to see what the attendance is like. You know, all indicators are that it's going to be you know gangbusters again, um, which is not a great thing um, considering you know, having that many people packed into one, um, you know, relatively small building. Uh, There's a lot of events going on on the sidelines, you know, you have Biotech Showcase uh, being one of them. And I think, uh, I believe JPM also is borrowing space uh, in in the Marriott as well, which is where the Biotech Showcase takes place for some of their, I think, private uh, track. Um, And so um, it's good to see that they're, you know, expanding the the footprint a little bit. Um, But everything in around the city, there's, there's also, you know, panels. I'm going to one panel. Tuesday morning, um, I was just invited to a second one Tuesday morning taking place off site. So there's a lot of emphasis on just renting space, you know, wherever we can, wherever it can be found. But, um, you know, there, there is that, uh, you know, disturbing dichotomy of, uh, you know, a city that, you know, really shouldn't be charging the outrageous prices it does for meeting space. And we've, we've seen, you know, some of the crazy, you know, hundred dollars an hour to, you know, rent a table, you know, have a cup of coffee with somebody. So, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot to, to, you know, not like about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially when you see these other conferences that are in some pretty, you know, interesting locales. I remember last year you were talking about obviously just how much rain and and, and how wet it was. So, yeah. And I, I, thank you for reminding me. I want, I I meant to say we're hoping for better weather. Yeah. Last year was really a torrential. Excellent. Uh, and I think we'll be leaving uh, as a snowstorm comes in on the East Coast. So hoping for better weather for sure. Yeah, Lesha and I will put up with that. And you get you <laughs> got out of here while you enjoy the weather. Yeah. Well, again, this is a good reminder because I've gotten a lot of pitches as well. Send those Mark's way. I will not be in San Francisco. Send those to Mark and uh, any interviews or you know opportunities for conversation. We'll field them all. He, he'll be right there. So that's awesome. Looking forward to obviously the coverage we get from you next week. I want to throw it over to you, Lesha, for our second segment. In a TikTok video posted earlier this year, content creator Isabella Main Waring says that, quote, hormone imbalances had taken away 10 years of happiness from her life. Acne, bloating, difficulty in losing weight, disordered eating patterns, anxiety and depression were among her symptoms. However, she details how so-called hormone balancing changes helped her, quote, get her sparkle back. I educated myself and realized that we live in a world designed for men and their 24-hour hormone cycle, which completely excludes our experience of a 28-day on average hormone cycle. So I embraced my cyclical design and adjusted my diet and exercise to each of the four phases of my cycle. And I feel like a whole new person. I have so much energy, clarity, and I'm happy. The video comes off almost like a pharmaceutical ad, except instead of a specific drug or treatment, Maine Waring is marketing the idea of hormone balancing as a catch-all phrase to treat any hormone-related issue. It's part of a much larger trend on TikTok where the hashtag hormone balancing tips have gathered more than 23 million views. 
They involve countless holistic solutions like eating raw carrot salads, getting sunlight every morning, or drinking dandelion root tea. Hormone imbalances are a real medical concern that can entail too little or too much of a certain hormone or multiple hormones, but they're typically identified through tests at the doctor's office and are medically treated depending on the cause. Low hormone levels might involve hormone replacement therapy in the form of pills or injection. Sometimes high hormone levels are treated with surgery, medication, or radiation therapy. Some of the steps listed in the hormone balancing TikTok videos are common sense, maintain consistent sleep and waking times, limit phones and blue light use before bed, take morning walks and eat plenty of healthy whole vegetables. Raw carrots, after all, can't be too harmful. But the issue lies in these TikTok creators making claims that these holistic changes, supplements, or a trend called cycle syncing will treat hormone balancing conditions that typically require a doctor's guidance and real medical treatment. Plus the trend could contribute to people thinking they have hormone imbalances when they really don't. So it's really interesting to see so many of these videos really coming across like pharma ads um, for some of these baseless tips, um, being, like gaining so much popularity. Obviously we've talked about so many of these trends and curious to hear both of your thoughts on this one. Yeah, I'll, I'll hop in there first. And I always think that there's a risk whenever we do these segments about like, is it going to be too niche? Is it going to be something that people haven't talked about? And then when you talk about these videos having 23 million views, I mean, you think about for our audience of marketers, they're like, oh, if I if I only you, I could get 23 million eyeballs on right. this FDA approved treatment or whatever. And like you said, it's glossy. It looks good. I watched a number of these videos when I was editing the story. It's like, I see the appeal. And if I was an impressionable, I say impressionable if you were a younger viewer, but like, even if you were somebody that maybe wasn't that familiar with, you know, who you should trust in terms of healthcare and your own care journey, it could come off as, as really cogent advice when in the meantime, it is kind of like, yeah, there is something to believe in it. There's also, as always got to do a little more research and got to look for something with a little more uh, credibility. So yeah, that, that was my takeaway is just looking at it and just seeing like, yep, it's, it's only getting tougher to get that line between this is actual verified information. This is stuff that looks like it, but there's some more questionable backing on it. Right. I, I too was struck by that comment that it comes across as a pharma ad, right? Um, which, which makes it harder to, to distinguish you know, what's real and what's not. But, you know, Lesha, you pointed out and you're reporting this past year that, you know, Gen Z and millennials, as I, I mentioned in the top of the show, are increasingly turning to platforms like TikTok to get healthcare information in lieu of seeing their doctors. And I think the one study you cited said 59 million people uh, fall into that bucket. And, and so, um, and it all, it all comes down to, to language and lexicon, you know, things like cycle syncing. It sounds real, you know, it sounds like something mm -hmm. legit. Um, and that's where, you know, people uh, like, you know, your interview uh, that we just heard uh, with Dr. Disney come into play, you know, people who grew up with social media and then combine that with the medical training and are real people, um, you know, can, can help to, to dispel some of these trends and get real people uh, on the quest who are on the quest for health, like the rest of us, back on track. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, people like Peter, um, fortunately, the number of, of doctor creators is definitely growing on the platform, and they are really being a counterpoint to a lot of these um, misleading trends. And, you know, we'll be definitely watching to see more of those doctor creators grow and establish more authority on the site. 
And it's just so interesting too, just going back to Mark's point a little bit on the language aspect. Like, I don't know about you, like I'll go on TikTok or something and I'll see somebody that if they speak so authoritatively, or we talked a few weeks ago about the, um, the person with the self-help book mm -hmm. that was taking off on Amazon. Like it's, it's kind of using that language. I know it usually has to do with like therapy or, or mental health care, but like people that it sounds like they know what they're talking about. So I should totally. believe them. But then when you dig into it, it's like, oh, that's not necessarily a real thing or it's, it's more pseudoscience than it is actual mm -hmm. treatments. It's just so interesting to see how it takes off. And it's, it's, I'm glad that you were able to have Peter, Dr. Disney on the show to be able to have an authoritative voice on this because it feels like for so often we take these stories and it's like somebody who's just kind of shooting off at the hip and sometimes it lands and sometimes people are no better for it or they're adversely affected. So yeah, those, those physician voices will provide a, a real counterpoint indeed. What do you got next, Jack? Yeah, to wrap up the show. So after we had signed off uh, for 2023, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences released their shortlist for 10 categories at the upcoming Oscars. Among those shortlisted films were those in documentary feature and documentary short film, which includes some healthcare-focused narratives. In the documentary feature film space, there is A Still Small Voice, which follows Matty, a chaplain completing a residency at Mount Sinai Hospital where she learns to provide spiritual care to people confronting profound life changes. There is also Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, which documents the acclaimed actor's life living with Parkinson's disease. American Symphony, which details Grammy Award winner John Baptiste's tumultuous year while his wife, Sulika Jaoud, receives treatment for leukemia. As well as The Eternal Memory, which tells the story of a Chilean couple whose 25-year marriage is upended by an Alzheimer's diagnosis. All these movies, other than A Still Small Voice, are available to watch on major streaming platforms. And as for documentary shorts, there is Oasis, which tells the story of Remy and his younger brother, Raph, who lives with a disability. And If Dreams Were Lightning, Rural Health Crisis, which premieres on PBS next Wednesday. And for those of you who are cinephiles, the films nominated for the 96 Academy Awards will be announced on Tuesday, January 23rd. And obviously, there are a number of stories that are going to be interesting to watch to see if they get nominated. There are a couple. I would think that the Michael J. Fox one is the first one that jumps out to me would be probably a betting favorite for at least a nomination, if not a win. I know American Symphony on some of the sites that I've seen is also favorite there. It's just always interesting to see some of these healthcare focused narratives really capture something in the broader general public. I know that's obviously our work and we're focused on it, but when it comes to healthcare media, to see it take a center stage like that is, is really interesting. I remember last year there was Nan Golden's documentary, which was nominated for uh, best documentary about her um, struggles with opioid addiction and her trying to bring justice or some sort of of justice to the Sackler family. So interesting to see this year is kind of more of a, a personal tale as well, but those seem right. to do really well. Yeah, you know, I think uh, to your point, Jack, uh, this is just a sign that health really does impact everyone directly. Sometimes it seems that, you know, healthcare can be sort of a niche coverage area, but it really isn't. You know, everyone is impacted by health and that's kind of reflected in, you know, these these documentaries and films uh, reflecting a lot of health issues. Thanks for the list. I haven't actually seen these yet, but um, there's several here that look really good and I'm probably going to put them in my queue. So, um, yeah, particularly the, uh, the Michael J. Fox one, I think will be really interesting to take a look at, um, as well as the PBS, uh, special on rural healthcare, I think is going to be a really pressing issue as well. So thanks for the list.
Absolutely. And Oasis was interesting, too, because the director of that, I, I watched it on the New York Times site. They have it for free for anybody that is worried that they don't have a subscription to the Times. But it's only 12 minutes. And the director had said that he really wanted to focus this on more of a story of brotherhood. But you can't watch it without recognizing that it's a story of brotherhood complicated by disability and, and being able to care for somebody in your life who has a disability. So kind of to your point, Lesh, it is all it all it is all personal when it comes to health. And I think that only makes the stories that much more meaningful to tell in a way. Yeah. Really interesting uh, segment here, Jack. Um, I think the uh, MMM's uh, film and video awards category is going to see a record number of entries this year, considering all these great uh, masterpieces here. Um, you know, and to Lesha, to your point, it is, it is a nice sort of contrast with last year's documentaries, a lot of, a lot of the docuseries, Jack, that you highlighted, which seemed to, you know, play off that bad boy trend, you know, yeah. big vape and, you know, pain hustlers <laughs> and the bad actors of the industry and calling those out and kind of, uh, sort of applying a Hollywood lens to, to them. I would also think that a lot of, in addition to a lot of, you know, people, ordinary people that are going to be watching these things, a lot of doctors probably are going to be watching these things, which will increase their empathy, you know, for all these, you know, conditions and diseases. Um, but, uh, you know, I was recently emailing with somebody who um, is a filmmaker and works for a healthcare media uh, company in the industry. I won't say the name uh, for obvious reasons, but he was saying that, um, you know, amidst a lot of the pharma sponsored and med tech sponsored films that they're, they're doing, the docuseries they're doing, they're doing shorter ones, but, uh, but a higher volume. So they're doing a lot of these short form you know, docu-series uh, type content that's sponsored by industry that's, you know, focused on um, highlighting diseases or like the, the expertise of a medical institution or that kind of thing. Um, so I'll be definitely uh, looking to, uh, to, to get some more insight on these. So thanks for highlighting them. No, and thanks for mentioning, you know, Big Vape and Bad Surgeon. Those were, while, <laughs> while interesting, I was not holding out hope that they were going to be nominated for an Oscar or Pain Hustlers for that matter. No no offense to any Netflix executives who are in our audience. So but, that was not a big letdown. Yeah. So. <laughs> thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the MMM Podcast. It was great to welcome everybody back. Be sure to listen to next week's episode. We'll be joined by Michelle Chen, president of Insilico Medicine. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>